Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and so grateful to have a place to talk about this stuff, big stuff, faith, politics, big ideas in our culture, with all kinds of really interesting, accomplished people of goodwill in good faith. And remember to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you have and you really like what we do, please tell somebody about it. Give us a rating, leave a review. Those are good ways to help help us continue doing what we're doing. The easiest way to find us, as you know, is our main site, which is real easy, politicsandreligion.us. That's www.politicsandreligion.us, because it's about all of us. And that helps get the word out so more people can participate in a conversation like the one we're having today with Philip Bump. Philip Bump is a national columnist for the Washington Post. Before that, he led political coverage for the Atlantic Wire, one of the paper's most read writers. He focuses on the data behind polls and political rhetoric. He has been on most major media outlets from MSNBC's Morning Joe to Fox News' Special Report and on NPR and PBS. His first book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America, which we'll be talking a lot about today, looks at the overlap of the end of the baby boom and the upheaval in American politics and the U.S. economy. Philip Bump, thank you for joining us. How are you doing? Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing great. I am doing great. Although you did write the the last column of the multiple columns you wrote today was about what uh, I'm under here in uh, in California. So oh, the deluge. Yeah, that's yeah. actually I, I wrote wrote one after that about COVID. So we don't don't feel too bad. It's there's there's another new one for you to check out. There. Oh, terrific! You, that was one of my questions. Actually, you are one of the most prolific writers on a daily basis. How? How are you able to keep up? Like, how are you able to hold so many thoughts on uh, and dive so deeply on on so many different issues on a daily basis? Sometimes you're coming out with four or more a day. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't really have a pet answer to that, right? You know, I mean, I just, I, I'm interested in a lot of different things. I've been doing this a long time. I've been at the Post alone for, it's, it's been my ninth year now. Um, but I also am just you know, I tend to look at things through a data lens and I tend to understand and be able to parse data easily. And so, you know, it, it, when you're, when most of the context for a piece is the numbers that undergird it and you're good at coming up with those numbers, then that obviously makes it quicker too. So, yeah. so I, I don't know. I, you know, it's just, it's something I'm fairly adept at. And I happen to, it, 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 this is one of those things where had I been living in 1850, I'd have been totally screwed and, you know, had no idea how to run a farm and like been, <laughs> you know, some, some living subsistence, you know, just try to scrounge for food. I, luckily I happen to be in an era when my, my skills match. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I, <laughs> That leads to another question I had about charts. I mean, I would imagine that whether it's a chart that you're developing yourself or someone else's really cool chart, you look at it and then it spurs a number of questions. Is that maybe one of your inspirations for some of the subjects that you write about? Yeah, actually, I just the, the COVID chart, the, the story that I just mentioned was based on a chart I saw this morning that looked at the number of people who are missing work each month uh, over the course of the past several years. And there's been a jump, as one would expect, during the pandemic era. There are more people now are missing work on a regular basis each month, uh, but it hasn't waned. You know, it's not as though there was this surge in early 2020 and then it fell back down. It's been consistent. It's at a higher level, essentially, than even a bad flu month. So I saw that chart. I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. And it tells us a lot about COVID. It tells us a lot about politics. It tells us a lot about workplace culture it's easy to replicate i know where the data are for it which is another advantage i have i know where you know i've been doing this long enough i know where the government hides all this data um you know and so so that was something that's inspired me to be like okay let's look at this a little deeper then that became a story so yeah i mean it's that that's how i think i you know, i have for a long time the work that i've done has been centered on uh data and data analysis and it's just that's just how my brain works so so it works well 
Now, I did notice that you went to, or I was going to say Ohio State, but the Ohio State University, um, and uh, but you studied philosophy there, right? Yeah. <laughs> did you did you start? Did you did you minor in uh, statistics or something, or how did you first get in like fall in love with charts and uh, develop the skill sure. of of making them? I mean, it's it's a real skill. Yeah. No, it's uh, the through line. There is logic. Okay. Uh, you know, one of the things I like most about philosophy were the logical discussions. I mean, I like philosophy because it provides you a framework for thinking about how to think about things, right? You know, and I, I, I you know, it's it's hard not to talk about the philosophy without sounding either pretentious or corny. But um, you know, I, I like philosophy because it applies a rigor to how you think of things that obviously is very useful in my current job to be to consider rigorously the things that were presented with in politics and culture. Uh, but then the logic aspect of it, which is just, you know, the, it is functionally equivalent to how you, for example, do computer programming, which is also something that I do, uh, just thinking through what what it means when two things and and or and the comparison between them and you know logic has a very formal structure which is applicable in philosophy but it's also applicable in math it's applicable in things like computer programming um and so a lot of the work that i ended up doing was very logical in the context of data and then the work that i do at the post is both that and logical in the sense of breaking down rhetoric and arguments and understanding them better and so the through line to to all of that is logic and you know logic being a subset of of the philosophy that i'm studying my minor by the way is history of course oh okay uh, so it, it's interesting cuz i'm thinking of one of the fascinating aspects of of albert einstein is he was able to think about the most complex ideas the co most complex equations distill them down to understandable pictures so that when he we read his work uh the the average guy who has a little bit of understanding in physics might be able to understand it based on those illustrations i'm curious how you is that the way you think you think about uh data and then you distill it and come up with visual ways of expressing it or what's your process to come up with how do you come up with so many great sure. charts yeah you're you're ascribing an intentionality that i can't say that i have right it's just sort of as intuitive i will say absolutely i always compare myself to einstein so i'm glad that was fine. <laughs> that's that's the first place i go to uh, no but i mean you know i for example i worked at adobe systems which is a they make adobe acrobat pdf they make photoshop things along those lines and my job there as a designer but as an instructional designer part of my job at adobe was to teach people how to use these products so a i got very good at the products which made it very easy for me to make graphs in adobe illustrator and so on and so forth uh, but it also helped me reinforce my ability to show people how to do things right and it turned out i was good at that you know i mean i was i, I came to adobe i didn't have a background in design i hadn't gone to design school but i ended up as a designer at adobe because i knew how to do this i knew how to explain these things to people and at the same time make aesthetically sufficient i won't say gorgeous but it says aesthetically <laughs> sufficient art to go along with it um and so i've been doing that for a long time so i i you know i for example i i used to work with city year which is an americorps program and i go into schools and help teach kids how to read and things along those lines so there's also this instructional aspect to it as well uh which is useful so for example when robert Mueller drops an indictment that's very complicated has all these pieces one of the things i'm good at is reading it parsing it and being able to present it to people in words, obviously not in a chart in that, in, in that example, but I'm also good at coming up with a chart that can represent a bunch of data well and and pick out the thing that's interest, interesting about a data set uh, and show that, you know, using a scatter plot or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, you know, it's a good point. Like, you can also sort of go in reverse. You picked out a story, I forget if it was today or yesterday, there was this... Uh, conflict between a, a newly elected uh, congresswoman in Florida mm -hmm. and a writer for MSNBC. And you were able to sort of weed through the generic political, you know, talking points and say, there's actually a, an interesting argument here. There's an interesting, uh, there's some interesting information to call through here. No, I mean, well, you know, that one, honestly, the the argument I was making aligned entirely with the book, which is coming out shortly. And so it was just like, you know, I, I I am seeing the the world very much through the lens of the book, just because I've been spending so much time thinking about it. And so that particular thing was about race and racial representation and the overlap with politics. And so while it was, you know, this very hackneyed, dull, like, oh, the media attacked me because blah, 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 sort of yeah. story on the surface, the subtext to it was this, these issues of race and politics, which I think are very interesting. Yeah, interesting and, and certainly worth exploring if you can have the discernment to see through uh 
the the fodder, if you will. Yeah. You, you know, I, I have noticed that your columns and other writing uh, definitely reflect a, po- a point of view, um, albeit one that is nuanced uh, with a compass, for lack of a better word, it points towards certain principles, but you're not, I wouldn't say that you're partisan. So how, how would you describe the most important principles that guide you, whether it's the way you view politics or culture more broadly? I think that justice and honesty are very important, right? I I think it is important to be fair, and I think it's important to be straightforward. And I get into a lot of trouble from both people on the left and on the right when I break down bad arguments and reveal them to be bad, right? But I've been thinking a lot about this. When When I was in uh, mid middle school or, or high school, a teacher told my mother that she had noticed that I had a very, very little patience for people who uh, were not very bright. And I, I don't <laughs> say that as a matter of pride. You know, you know, I mean, you can see me being an obnoxious little jerk in eighth grade and like mocking, like, you know, who know who knows how that manifested in the way that the teacher said she would, you know, mention to my, my mother. Uh, but I find that that's actually a very useful instinct for me in the moment because it gets me very mad at people who, for example, make obviously false claims about election fraud in 2020. It makes me mad. And I, you know, I have energy to be like, here are all the reasons it, you know, it powers my interest in breaking these things down. Right. And that again is, you know, it's not, it is about responding to stupidity, but it's also about being honest and being fair and, you know, and, and treating something accurately and honestly, which obviously is what all journalists try and do. But um, I think is, you know, one of the, one of the core principles that I have. Do you find that approach is equipping folks who generally agree with some of those concerns, or is it also persuasive of those who are also uh, enthralled with, uh, you know, elect the, the the election deniers, for example? Well, I mean, this is a, this is a fundamental question for a media in this moment, which is, do we have any effects? Right? Do are are we getting through to people who have had this very very robust effort to treat us as the dishonest parties to treat us as the the biased parties uh you know when all of our work is behind a paywall and people aren't going to pay to read it and you know even if they were free they don't read it most of the time because they get you know takedowns of what we're writing on Breitbart and these other websites you know are we able to actually make a dent and I have to say that the answer to that is often no that you know I I can write a lot of takedowns of of bad arguments and so on and so forth. And they're never seen. And, you know, even if I were to print them out and hand them to someone and say, look, read this, you're, you, what you're saying is not accurate. I can, I can show it to you, read this document. They'll throw it in the trash be like, you're, you know, <laughs> you're, you work for the Washington compost. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I say that as, as a sort of a joke, but it, it's a real problem. And it, it's, it's a fundamental reason that we have the, the, the divide in the culture that we have. Yeah, it seems like we can't even agree on uh, facts, you know, the, the right. idea of alternative facts, if you will. You know, it, it, that points to uh, something you expressed at the very end of the book. Um, you express a hope at the end of the acknowledgments, speaking of your kids, mm-hmm. that this book was something you did to make their lives better. Right. Uh, the the after. So we're talking about the aftermath again. It's the aftermath, the last days of the baby boom and the future of power in America. So how are you hoping that this work would make lives of future generations better? I, I didn't know anyone read the acknowledgments, so I, I was I was not expecting that question. Yeah, I mean the book's dedicated to my kids, uh, you know, and part of what I try and do in my job and in my life is is reflect to them how I think life ought to be lived, right? Which I think is probably what all parents do. Uh, but really, you know, the the reason I included that at the end of the acknowledgments and saying essentially that hopefully they'll look back on the book and see it as something of value was really just sort of a a mark of the fact of that they are very young and we're only sort of semi-cognizant of the fact that I'm writing a book. You know, my my elder son, who is now six, uh, was the, when I told him the book was almost finished, he asked if the one thing I had to do was go back and add the pictures. The pictures. That's right. um, you know, but the, the, and of course there are a lot of pictures that have to be charts, but, um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, the book is not intended to be a seminal work that reshapes American society, but it is instead to sort of help us understand why things are happening. And I think the lens of the book, which is that 
there are a lot of tensions in American society which are born of the sharp differences between older and younger Americans, differences that extend well beyond age. I think that recognizing that and using some of the examples in the book about how better to ameliorate those differences, um, I think it can be beneficial. I don't think it's going to upend, you know, I don't think that America's rift will be healed when everyone buys a copy of the aftermath and reads it. Uh, but I think, you know, I think that it is both a fair, accurate and comprehensive comprehensive assessment of where America is in the moment, but also, you know, an optimistic slash realistic one. So going a generation behind, it so happens, I think you describe yourself as a Gen Xer. I, I, I am right smack in the middle. I was born in 71. My mother happens to be one one exactly one year and one day younger than Kathleen Casey Kirschling. I think that's well, how you say her last name. That is, yeah. Are your parents uh, boomers? They're boomers. Yeah, forty-eight, both of them. Oh, okay, yeah. So we're right about in the same same range. Both my parents were nineteen forty-seven. So was that part of your fascination with this generation, or is it just the significance of the impact the baby boomer generation has had on our culture? Yeah, I mean, no disrespect to my parents, but no, that was not a factor. <laughs> right? um, no, I mean, it really is just, I, I've been fascinated by generations for some time. It probably started, I'd say maybe 2014 or so back when I was working for the Atlantic Wire. I did a piece then sort of assessing. There, there was, you know, every couple of months or years, there emerges one of these little brouhaha's about who's in what generation, so on and so forth, right? Uh, and so one occurred at that point in time. And so I decided to poke rounds, which is, you know, again, this is this is what I do. I like, there's a question. Oh, I want to get the answer to that question. Then I try and do it and visualize it. So I made a chart for the Atlantic that used the then best available and most broadly accepted definitions of what the generations were. Uh, I talked to people at the Census Bureau, and one of the things that they commented to me at that time was that the only generation the Census Bureau recognizes is the baby boom. And the reason why is because it has sharp demographic markers. Uh, you can see, and there are charts in the book that show this, you can see when in 1946, all of a sudden, the number of births just skyrockets, yeah. and it stays high until you know essentially the mid-1960s, which it comes back down. And so the millennials are also a big generation, uh, but they don't, they don't have those same markers. They are not as distinctive demographically as the baby boomers. Uh, and so th that at the time, the fact that the baby boomers were so large that they were the only definable generation, essentially, by the standards of the U.S. Census Bureau, that stuck with me. Uh, and then as I started to research the book and learned about the actual sheer size of the boom, which, you know, I, I couldn't even fathom coming into it, uh, you know, that that obviously drove a lot of what the, the rest of the copy in the book. Yeah. One of the bits of trivia that I found fascinating that I kind of knew generally, but seeing it and, and seeing you kind of expound upon it is that three of our most recent presidents were born within yeah. 66 days. Now, technically, Donald Trump was born just before that actual spike. Uh, but yeah, what, what significance could you draw out a little bit of the significance and and whether you think they are those three presidents, uh, George W. Bush, uh, Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, Trump, all born within yeah. 66 days of each other. What significance that holds and, and whether they represent the generation well? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's it is it is a fascinating little aspect of American history. So, yeah, basically from June to August 1946, uh, the baby boom started. If I mean, that's off the top of my head. I believe that's right. Um, the baby boom essentially started right in the middle of 1946, according to demographers. We generally consider 1946 broadly to be uh, the start of the baby boom generation. The woman to whom you referred earlier, uh, Kathleen Casey Kirschling, who uh, is considered the first boomer, uh, yeah. was born at the stroke of midnight in 1946. So technically she was pre-boom according to the demographers but you know we use her just as, as the standard so anyway all of that here's the problem when you write a book on a thing then you have eighty-five thousand different footnotes you have to inject into every conversation <laughs> anyway yeah it's fascinating to consider that those three presidents very very different people and very very different presidencies very very different politics were all born in that in that two month span so you have donald trump being born then you have george w bush being born you have bill clinton being born all within two months uh over the course of the summer of 1946. donald trump of course born into wealth uh born into a certain status not the status that he would eventually gain but uh and and not the oldest child either which is unusual for a lot of kids that were born in 1946 were the first kids that's the whole point right you know ostensibly the sort of the 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 uh the, the mythology goes that the soldiers came back from the war and had kids and these are the you know often the first kids uh and so one of the people uh, who's written about donald donald trump gwenda blair she noted that noted that he sort of had the 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 style of a firstborn kid 
you know, he was sort of like, you know, he assumed he was the, the sort of the king of the world sort of vibe that you get from firstborns. Um, and so, but, but a very different than George W. Bush, who was born into a very real and established, you know, uh, dynasty in America. Uh, you know, he had uh, was his uncle or his great uncle who was a U.S. senator. Obviously, his father was a senior government official, went on to become president. He himself became president. They had money, you know, he, he grew up in his born in Connecticut, which people tend to forget. Uh, and then you have uh, Bill Clinton, who was abandoned essentially by his father, was raised by his grandparents in Arkansas uh, and sort of worked his way up from there. Clinton, of course, becomes a Democrat. George W. Bush becomes an establishment Republican. Donald Trump becomes a, yeah, a right wing populist Republican. Right. You know, and it's so so you can see sort of the life circumstances that 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 led each of them to their final place in American history. Uh, but you also see how they represent different poles from within the baby boom itself. And it's also worth noting that they represent the baby boom because they are white men who share certain characteristics. And, you know, the baby boom is very, very heavily white. And that is one of the one of the core differences between it and younger Americans, uh, which, again, is the central part of the book. Yeah, yeah. So pulling the lens out a little bit, how big is the baby boomer generation as a share of the U.S. population? But also, how might you quantify boomers' share of power and wealth in the country? Sure. So the I, I I'm afraid I'm a, I'm not able to recite the statistics all the time I had. But essentially, one way to think about the size of the baby boom is there are about as many uh, in 1946. If you took the population in 1946, so over the course of the next 19 years, the period of the baby boom itself, there were Basically, you uh, the number of babies born was greater than half of the size of the entire population of the United States in 1946. Right. So it would be as right now there's 330 million people living in the United States. It would be as if 115 million people were born in the next wow. two decades in the United States. Right. Yeah. Which is insane to think about. Like, of course, like that's insane. Another way to think about is the baby boom is. Uh, the 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 millennial generation is defined by Pew Research Center uh, because it's not a, technically a demographic generation. Uh, but the millennial generation is almost the same size as the baby boom in terms of p actual people, in terms of count. Exactly. Right. But not percentage of the population. That's exactly right. And so the baby boomers were so many people that were born into this relatively small American population that the, the same group of people is, is about the same size uh, of a generation. These millennials you know, were also born to the United States. But by then, the United States had become this massive, huge population. Uh, and so the millennials didn't have the same percentage impact uh, on the country uh, as right. the baby boom. And I forgot the second part of your question. But Oh, that's OK. Sorry. I, I tend to do that. I think in um, no, conjunctions. <laughs> so sure. the, the second part is, is um, so we have a sense of the number and percentage of people the baby boomers make up. Currently. Oh, power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, power and wealth. Uh, they yeah. have an outsized uh, influence in terms of power and wealth, don't they? Yeah, but I mean, consider that they always did, right? And this is one of the one of the the, the introductory points of the book, which is that we don't. No one can understand what life was like before the baby boom. There are very very few people who are alive today who were, you know, cognizant of the United States prior to the baby boom. Everyone else was either a member of the baby boom or came after it. And so we we tend to underestimate or or under understand which is to coin a new word there but i think you get what i'm saying yeah the the scale of the effect that it had so you have you know again this 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 population increase of 50 percent of the entire population being born uh over those over those two decades at a period right after the world war ii and the, the the economy is booming and the analogy that's often used is of a snake swallowing a pig yeah. Right. And that, you know, first the snake has to unhinge its jaw and the pig starts working its way in. And then as it moves through the body, the the snake's body gets very, very wide. And then, it you know, as the pig passes through, it gets very, very narrow. And so we saw this uh, with the American economy and we see it with American power. We see that as the baby boom, you know, when there are babies, all of a sudden a massive boom in baby-related businesses. Diapers, yeah. yes, diapers, yeah. shoe bronzing, right? All these different things. Uh, and then they get they get older, and then all of a sudden there isn't as much demand for those, right? And so, you know, the diaper industry, you know, is, is no longer experiencing those boom times. Of course, it took, you know, the baby boom lasted for two decades, so they've been okay for a while. Uh, but then you get to, you know, you just got to start building all these schools. Los Angeles County, over the course of the years of the baby boom, is averaging one new school every single month. That's just in Los Angeles, right? And that's a <laughs> period yeah. of 19 years. Yeah. Um, you know, then you get into the workforce. All of a sudden, there are all these people that need to find jobs. And so a lot more people start going to college. 
That happens right when Vietnam is emerging, right? So a lot of these people get drafted and sent to Vietnam. Uh, then you get into you get into power itself, the halls of Congress, right? And you can actually see if you look at the average age of legislators, you can see this downward shift as all of a sudden the baby boomers were, of course, agitated to be able to vote at a younger age and were able to successfully get a constitutional amendment that allowed them to do that, start electing people more in their age group. Bill Clinton, the best example of that, right? He's the first baby boomer president. He elected at a very young age, as were all these other boomers. But now we're getting to the point where they're all retiring and all the boomers are older. And so all of these patterns that happened are now happening with older people. And at the same time, the baby boomers broadly generationally have accrued a lot of wealth. They own homes. They have all this power, both in business and in, in politics. Uh, and there is now a large group of younger people who is coming up behind them and saying, hey, wait a minute, what about our share? Uh, but the baby boom is so large. And it's not that it acts you know, cohesively as a generation. It's not like everyone in it shares the same politics and economics and so, on and so forth. Uh, but there is this instantiated power within this group of people that lingers in a way that past generations haven't simply by virtue of that same ongoing pig in the python scale. Yeah. You know, you brought up so so many interesting points about not only the history of the baby boom generation, but also starting to project out forward. And one of the things mm -hmm. uh, that you point out, I don't have the exact note in front of me, but one of the things, it's the first time that I've seen uh, this note in terms of don't worry too much about it. And that is the social security trust fund. Yeah. yeah. The, that, that, um, a lot of folks are saying, hey, the house is on fire, guys. This is going to run out pretty soon. I think 2030 is is the year right. or thereabouts. And and you you made an argument in the book or cited some arguments in the book for like, no, nah, it's kind of the way it's supposed to go. Right. So so can you can you remind me or or share with our listeners how that argument goes? Yeah. So essentially, the baby boom occurs right after the New Deal. Right. And so there are all these government programs that are put in place, you know, as a response to the Depression in the wake of World War II, essentially. Uh, and, you know, prior to World War II, the, during the the, the uh, Roosevelt administration, it instantiates all of these different programs that are designed to provide for security for, for individuals in various ways. So, so social security is created. And the idea of social security is you work over the course of your life, you put it in the social security fund, and then when you're ready to retire, you draw down from the social security fund, right? And it's supposed to be, uh, you know, the, the, the idea, I guess, theoretically is that it, is a wash over the course of your life. You put it in and you get the, the money out, right? That's not really how it works for a lot of reasons. People die earlier, people live longer. There are all these ways in which the, the actual, uh, percentages are shifted. But the idea now, consider that the baby boom started in 1946. As we talk, it is the year 2023, right? So what does that mean? That means that over the, the, the oldest baby boomers are now 77. The youngest baby boomers are about two decades younger than that. And so we're right in the middle of baby boomers retiring. We're right in the middle of baby boomers starting to draw down on that money. So we had this huge, again, think of the pig in the python. We had this huge group of people who are entering the workforce, paying the social security, adding all this money. And so the size of the social security trust fund, and there's several funds, but you know, to use it collectively, balloons, there's all this money that's put into it. And now we're at the part where it's starting to be drawn down on, right? Which is the way that it's supposed to work. And so right. I talked to Monique Morrissey from the Economic Policy Institute. You know, she's not a hard right Republican. That's that's not what EPI is. But this was her point. Her point was, yes, this is what's supposed to be happening. Now. It's supposed to be going down. Now, granted, we don't want it to go to zero. And there are a lot of challenges um, that are emerging in part because Americans are living longer, uh, or at least they were you know, prior to the pandemic. Life expectancy has dropped since then. But people generally are living longer. That the, the retirement, it's sort of hard to say what retirement looks like. Uh, you know, so there, there are a lot of asterisks and factors that play into the solvency of this uh, of this fund, uh, but the, the it is designed to be depleted. It is designed for this big pool of money to go downward. That doesn't mean that there may not have to be adjustments, that people may end up getting less than they had expected. Uh, that certainly could be in the forecast, but to, uh, to worry about it being drawn down at a time when the biggest population, the biggest, you know, percentage-wise generation in American history is now reaching retirement age, like that's how the system is supposed to work. Yeah, I love how you describe uh, not just uh, this factor, but other factors, both historically and kind of trying to project out to the degree that we can. Uh, you said at one point over and over, 
age-dependent systems struggle to accommodate the encroaching boomers. And as you say, it's like America has been a nation of Lucille Ball scrambling to handle the conveyor yeah. belt of chocolates. Yeah. Uh, but I, right. I did- Wait, um, Which I point out is something that only boomers and Gen Xers are actually going to understand the reference, yeah, that's, but that's fine. That's right. Yeah. It's a very boomer-esque uh, re reference. It is. So in addition to simply being older than Gen Xers, and you talked about a little bit about this, mm -hmm. uh, older than Gen Xers, millennials, Gen Z, what are some of the other demographic differences that distinguish boomers? Yeah, I mean, the fundamental one, as I mentioned earlier, is race, right? So we have uh, the baby boomers were born at a moment when immigration was curtailed by law in the United States. There was a big backlash against immigration about a century ago. Uh, there were immigration laws on the books that depleted the number of people who were coming to the country. Uh, as one sociologist who I spoke with uh pointed out that by the time the boom began, the average immigrant was somebody's grandparent. You know, these were old world people that came over from Italy or Ireland. And, you know, they were in their 60s and 70s. And, you know, most Americans, particularly during the boom, when, you know, there are all these babies being born, that, that there was very, very low density of immigrants. Uh, then in the late 1960s, uh, immigration laws are loosened. And so we start seeing this big surge of immigrants, not only from uh, Mexico and Central America, but also from Asia and other parts of the world, Africa as well. And America starts becoming more diverse. And so we start seeing particularly younger people immigrate to the United States, people of childbearing age, and they start having kids. And so we see these populations of non-white um, Americans and U.S. residents start to blossom and, and, and grow very quickly. Uh, and of course, you know, the kids that are born in America become Americans. And so uh, suddenly we see that this very, very heavily white generation, the baby boomers, although it got the fascinating thing about the baby boom is even after the boom ended, right, the boom ends in 1964, but the population still continues to grow because of immigrants. So we have these people who are born outside the United States during the baby boom years who count as baby boomers. And those people are more heavily non-white, primarily Hispanic. And so the baby boom actually, after the boom was over, both got bigger and less white by virtue of these immigration changes. Uh, but we also see that younger generations in the United States uh, tend to be more heavily black and Hispanic and Asian uh, and you know mixed race in particular uh, than were the baby boom. And so we have this di difference between the baby boom and younger America. So when we talk about you know the boomers looking at America and America doesn't look like them anymore. It's literal, right? There are a lot of people who aren't white in America now. You know, under the age of 18, about half of the, the people uh, in America who are under the age of 18 are, are non-white. And so race is a big one. Then you have these other factors, uh, you know, cultural and social factors, education. You know, baby boomers were much better educated than their parents, but that trend continued. And so younger people are much, much better educated uh, than our baby boomers. Uh, uh, institutions, right? Uh, religion. Right. Younger Americans are much less religious than older Americans. You know, the baby boomers, again, these are trends that were uh, these are continuations of trends. Um, you you have the book, you know, Bowling Alone, yeah. uh, which is a very classic assessment of Americans sort of walking away from institutions. Uh, but that trend continued. So millennials and Gen Xers are much, or Gen, and Gen Zers are much, much less religious than were baby boomers. Uh, and so there is, you know, we get all these divides on things that have overlap with economics and have overlap with politics, like education and like religion, uh, that differentiate the boomers from younger Americans uh, and that contribute to the tensions that we see between the generations. Yeah. You speak, so speaking of politics, I love how you ask a, a really succinct question in the book. You say, how much of the overlap between older voters and the GOP is a function of the racial demography of that older group and how much a function of the fact that they're older? So how would you answer that? Well, I would hedge <laughs> because, <laughs> <I know. laughs> because those things are hard to disentangle. But the, the entire point is that they're hard to disentangle, right? So when we talk about, you know, there we have this assumption and people with whom I spoke pointed out that this is, you know, one of the things you get when you start here, I'm going down a, a cascade of footnotes here again. But, you know, one of the <laughs> things that you start to realize when you look at even just recent history in the United States is we don't really have good social data going back prior to like 1970, right? We don't have great polling. We don't have great, you know, we don't have reliable research. There's just not a lot. So really the, the history of the United States and our ability to really parse it in detail is only about 50 years old, a little older than that potentially, right? And, you know, I'm, you know, give a short shrift to all sorts of people who, who came before that time, but you, you understand the point that these yeah. things are, these things are, 
you know, a lot of it too was just sort of buried in old tomes and dusty libraries and college campuses. And so it's not even accessible to most people. Um, so that said, it means that it is hard for us to understand whether hoary old assumptions like that people tend to get more conservative as they get older, whether that generally held, you know, and there's, we, without polling, there's not even a good way to measure that. Like, what does it mean to be more conservative when you're, you know, in say 19, 15, right? Like, what does it mean to be more conservative then? Is that comparable? Is that comparable to how we understand conservative now? Right. So, so we have these assumptions. Younger people get more conservative as they get older. But the people with whom I spoke said, well, that's not necessarily the case. And now in this moment, because we see that youth is confounded with race, right? That it is inextricable that people who are younger are less white, it's very hard to say. Why is there this political difference between older and younger? Is it just the standard difference between older and younger in terms of, you know, that older people are more conservative and younger people are more liberal? Or is it because these younger people are more likely to be Hispanic and Black and Asian, uh, who are groups who tend to vote more heavily demographic or democratic? Or is it because they are people who care about issues that weren't salient to older generations, like climate change? or uh, LGBTQ rights, right? Those weren't things that baby boomers paid attention to. They're very important to younger Americans. Is that part of what drives them to be more democratic? How does that overlap with race, right? You know, like, so so it's hard to disentangle all of this, but the entire point is that this generation, the boom generation, I'm doing hand gestures, which is really useful on a podcast, but um, (laughs) that this, this older generation of the boomers, it just has very different characteristics than younger generations. And so we recognize that there are broad political differences, but it's hard to describe those differences to one particular set of dynamics. I just had a random thought. Um, One one aspect that you don't deal with as much is where different people of different age ranges, different generations Mm -hmm. are getting their information. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I'm wondering if kids, my kids' age, are going to be uh, more discerning about how to assess the information that they're getting. So number one, it's like where my kids get their information and their news sources, very different than where my parents are getting it. Um, But number two is as we move forward, are they, are are kids in their twenties now and getting into their thirties going to be better at saying, at, you know, calling bullshit basically. Yeah. So, so I, I do mention that briefly. Part of the challenge is that these tools like social media, TikTok, you know, things like that are so new that there's yeah. not a whole lot of research on them. Uh, there, I have seen studies actually suggesting both that younger people are more discriminating in terms of the information they consume and that they aren't. I tend to believe, and I've seen more studies that suggest they are more discriminating because they sort of were born into this universe of nonsense and sort yeah. of had to had to feel their way through it in a way that, that that older generations didn't. I think everyone knows that the main sources of information are going to continue to be podcasts, newspapers, and books. I think we can all agree to that. That's true. <laughs> uh, but no, I, you know, I mean, you look at something like cable news, right? Young people don't watch cable news. And cable news is a source of information to a lot of people. It is particularly a source of bad information on the political right in a lot of ways. Um, There also is and has for a long time been a marketplace for misinformation and false claims that are tailored to the political right uh, that we saw very clearly during the Tea Party era that we saw in 2016. Um, And that is a challenge. And though that tends to correlate because older Americans tend to be more conservative, uh, you know, there is, again, this sort of it's this this confounding between age and politics and, you know, what is it that actually makes them more more uh, potentially more susceptible to or more likely to share false information, things along those lines. And it's just we're, we're just sort of early, like, you know, Facebook has not been around very long. And so it, I don't know that we have a lot of good research on the long term effects of of people's ability to differentiate good information and bad on social media as a result. Uh, you know, another stat that you cited, uh, staying with politics, that I want to reflect on, it's it's a little bit of a sidebar, but really important. Mm. You mentioned that four in 10 Trump voters had no friends who were supporting Biden, and yeah. four in 10 Biden voters had no uh, friends backing Trump. So number one, why is that? And number two, mm. what are some of the ways we see that fact playing out in our in our politics? I mean, the, the, it's a political point, but what are some of the For other sure. ways that we see it playing out in our politics? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the primary reasons that that occurs is that people just don't 
live near or socialize with people who are different than them. So geographic sorting. Geographic, absolutely, but also just cultural, right? And, you know, I mean, young people hang out with young people, right? <laughs> right? Old people hang out with old people, you know, even in places where uh, there may be, you know, like take a, a, a college town in in Oklahoma, right? And so, you know, in the town itself, you got all the college kids and they're mixing in, you know, with with older people who may be more conservative and and, and more rural, uh, but it's not like they're hanging out together, not, you know, sitting down and having dinner and having coffee. And so you, we, we have these other barriers and because we do see that older Americans are more, are more conservative and younger uh, Americans are more democratic, I, I think that plays a role too. Um, but I really think that this is one of the reasons, for example, uh, that we see that we saw Donald Trump's false claims about the 2020 election really take root. You know, if you are someone who lives in an area where you are skeptical of big cities, and you know, it's very easy to sound patronizing here, and I and I, I don't mean to. Um, and so forgive me if I do. I don't intend to. But and for the record, you you grew up in in Western New York, so not not really. I grew up in Ro- I grew up in Rochester, so it's not oh, like, okay. You know, <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't really you know. It was, I mean, honestly, when I went to high school, I lived in a small town in Northeast Ohio outside of Youngstown, so that okay. was probably that's probably more now this year. Yeah, um, that, that's those are better bona fides for this particular conversation. Um, but um, yeah, you know, I mean, if you are someone who lives in say a rural area of Wisconsin and you're just sort of skeptical of Milwaukee, or you see on Fox News that that you know these cities are these hell holes of socialism and all the everything's being burned down by BLM and you know you 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 don't have firsthand experience of that and you believe that to be true and you don't understand how they're doing it. and then all of a sudden you see that oh oh you know Donald Trump lost Wisconsin because Milwaukee suddenly came with all these votes yeah of course they did right like and then you don't know anyone you know Mark Fincham this guy who ran for Secretary of State in right. Arizona yeah uh, you know he very famously said that like he doesn't believe Biden one because he doesn't know anyone to vote for Biden yeah he doesn't I'm sure he doesn't know anyone to vote for Biden right yeah. you know that's 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 the problem. If you don't know anyone who works for Biden, if you're skeptical of the big cities, if you're being told that the Democrats are cheating and that cities are these these hubs of fraud, it's very easy then to believe like, yeah, of course the election was stolen. Like you're not going to be able to convince me otherwise. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's one of the ways in which that manifests. Yeah, to your point, I, I've shared this uh, before, but that um, just happened just recently within within the last month or so. I do make an effort to talk to folks that have very different views than me. I tend to be more centrist, independent. Um, so I, I get a little bit more of a chance to read. It doesn't take me that far to reach, you know, to someone to the right of me or to the left of me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but yeah, one conversation, I was talking to someone that's absolutely convinced that the, the election was stolen. And her response, one of the first responses she gave me was, well, I don't know anyone who voted for Biden, let alone 81 million people. Yeah, it was yeah. as if she was, you know, listening to a Carrie Lake speech and just regurgitating it. But she, this is a very nice um, woman, uh, you know, the uh, and someone who's very earnest in 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 believing that. So, right. um, but I, I it, it occurred to me in reading your book, it helped me understand, like, what I, that doesn't make sense. That I her, her circle of friends sure. uh, likely is more homogenous than. Um, than than my own. I, I don't right. know. I'm not not trying to um, put myself on a pedestal to to use your. No, phrase. no, I get it. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, there are there are a lot of places in America where most of the people, and I got actual precinct level data. So you know, the election results can be broken down to precinct level. Just you know, at most a couple dozen or maybe a couple hundred people live in a precinct, and you can look at the precinct results of an election to see how homogenous the vote is there, right? And so there are a lot of places in this country where precinct level results were you know. 75-25 for yeah. one of the two candidates. And that just right. means that three quarters of the people that live in this very small neighborhood all voted for the same candidate. And it's very easy then to presuppose that they all understand each other and share the same values and know each other. And, you know, you know, and probably that 25% doesn't spend a lot of time advertising that they're big Biden or Trump supporters in that group of the 75% that voted for the other guy, right? You know, so there, there we really can see, and there's great analysis done uh, that I mentioned in the book uh, that actually looked at the extent to which people live near people from the other party in, in American cities. And it's just like, even in places that are fairly purple, there are huge red, blue divides in specific neighborhoods and precincts, which is just sort of you know, to your point about the geographic sorting, that's that's how America is constructed at this point. So the data might uh, indicate that my wish or myopia, my own myopia, is uh, it, it has gone astray. So, t- so you do you do address uh, the so-called culture wars. And, and by mm-hmm. the way, I was I was surprised to learn that that expression only dates back to the early '90s. It yeah. seems like it's been around my whole life. But I did want to get your thoughts on this. It seems to me that the culture wars mentality makes it out as if we're all 
locked in a very binary battle with sides being very distinct, uh, very distinct, and all sides being very orthodox to their own quote unquote side. Mm-hmm. But, and again, this is where my own myopia comes in. I thought we're a lot more diverse, especially on an individual basis, uh, on an individual issue basis, sure. uh, diverse in terms of what sets of views I might have. But am I wrong about that? Am I myopic about that? Or is it really as binary as as the culture wars, as, as Tucker Carlson would have us believe? Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I mean, it's not. I mean, he, look, you know, one of the things I always say in interviews like this is you and I pay a lot more attention to this stuff than the average person. Right. Like most people don't spend a lot of time worrying about politics. They don't really, you know, they 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 pay attention to who's running for president. They probably know who their senators are. Right. They may know who the representatives are, but they worry about that mostly in election years. And again, I'm not, I don't mean to sound patronizing. I mean, God, I, 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 I'm jealous. You're making right? the case you know? why at least 100 million out of the 330 million need to read your book. Oh, well, of course. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, I mean, look, there are. We, it is easy for us to put people into buckets in part because American politics is structured around this or that, right? Um, and so if you have views that don't fit into this, then you must be part of that. Or right, be, right. And, you know, there is a very real and documented effect of, of when a group of people who share political views start to uh, – um, start to hold another view that that other people sort of start to aggregate around that view as well. You know, and part, one of the reasons we have political parties, obviously, is so that we don't all have to like sit down and think, well, what does it mean to increase military spending? Like, I don't know. Like, I can't, I, I am not, you know, I'm going to defer to the experts on how much we should be spending on the military because that's not, that's not my wheelhouse. And one of the reasons that political parties exist is to provide a sort of consensus answer from people who agree with us on most other things about what these things should look like. And so that's one of the reasons we tend to sort of align with the rest of the people in the party. But then, of course, we've seen this big backlash that we live in this era, as Julia Zari, the political scientist, says, of uh, very, very strong partisanship, but very weak uh, uh a very, very strong uh, partisanship of very weak parties, right? So we see uh, most Americans, uh, the plurality of Americans are independents and they are not registered as Democrats or Republicans. Uh, they tend to vote either Democratic or Republican. They both, they tend to be very skeptical of the parties. Uh, and these are people who often don't feel as though they fit within the stricture of the party, even if they generally agree with the party, even if they generally agree with the party's positions, you know, perhaps they do go sideways on something like abortion or they go sideways on something, uh, you know, something else of, of importance to, to one of the political parties. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that people, A, don't spend a lot of time doing a lot of self-assessment in terms of what they believe about complicated political issues because it's not important to them and they just you know that's not how they live their lives and god bless them for that uh but b i think that uh we are seeing this era of politics in america where people aren't willing to sign up for one of the two parties and they want to show that they do not you know adhere within the boundaries of the parties even if they end up voting with the parties anyway yeah yeah you know so kind of stepping away uh, a little bit less specifically from politics and more looking sociologically, economically. I've really appreciated the um, the last third or so of the book where you're dealing with trying to look out ahead, albeit with humility, <laughs> knowing that there, there's, as you discussed, there's certain knowns, unknowns, and a lot of unknowns, unknowns. So to the degree that you can, who will inherit the economic boom yeah, no, this is this is a fascinating question. And this is not my uh, area of expertise. And so it's very interesting to talk to, I, you know, I write a lot about politics. I write a little bit about economics, but not not to the same extent. So it's very interesting to talk to a lot of people who are really, really detailed in this. And I had some good interviews with that, but like, I very much was like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I mean, yeah. like, you know, yeah. I'm like, I'm going to pay close attention and listen to this a few times. Um, but essentially, here's what we've got. We have this baby boom generation. They're getting older. They're starting to retire, as, as I mentioned. Most retirees at this point are baby boomers. Um, and we are seeing that these baby boomers have a lot of wealth. They don't necessarily have it on an individual basis. Uh, there is huge wealth inequality in the United States. And so we have a lot of very, very rich baby boomers. We have a lot of less rich baby boomers uh, who are very much you know, I think that group uh, tends to drive a lot of the backlash against this perception of baby boomers as rich because they themselves aren't rich and they understand, right. you know, that, that we're talking about a, a subset of the boom. 
Uh, but there's a lot of money in the boom, and there is going to be a, a huge transfer of wealth. Necessarily, that's what happens. People die, and people, uh, you know, people start making gifts to charities or to family members even before they die. And there's this big transfer of wealth uh, that happens as people reach the end of their lives. Uh, and you know, I spoke with uh, with people who do who do these sorts of assessments. And, you know, we're talking trillions of dollars. It's going to change hands here. Um, but the question is, we don't know the time period of which that's going to happen, right? And so we have yes, baby boomers are older, rich retirement age, but it's not like you die at the age of seventy. God, you know. Thankfully, right? Yeah, it's yeah. not as though we have a hard stop. We don't know when that's going to happen. And so there are a lot of things now that introduce uncertainty as to how much money will be passed on. How long do people live, right? If people start living to be 95 years old, they're going to draw down a lot of the wealth that they have. They're going to sell their houses. They're going to go to assisted living. They're going to go to senior housing. They're going to be spending a lot more money on medical care and self-care over the course of the end of their lives, the long that they live, right? Uh, you know, what does it look like in terms of... Uh, uh, their housing. You know, when do you sell your house? Do you sell? Do you want us to live in your house for the rest of your lives? Is someone going to buy your house? Is there going to be demand for the sorts of house that baby boomers want to live in? And there's a real question. You know, do do millennials and Gen Zers do they want to live in a big house and stuff? Yeah, in so the villages. Have, yeah, right. Do they? Yeah, do they want to live in the villages? Right. I mean, you know, the villages isn't that big, so I think they'll probably find space. But uh, you know, the, will those people be able to sell their houses, or will they be able to sell them for as much as they assume they would be able to sell them at? You know, and uh, will they have a sudden medical emergency? I tell the story in the book, you know, I'm not the first to, but of this, the, the gentleman who won the Nobel Prize and then was struck with Alzheimer's and he had no choice, but he had these medical bills and he had to sell his Nobel oh, Prize right. in order yeah. to, get, you know, I mean, it's just like, you know, these sorts of tragic situations arise. And I don't mean to be a pessimist, but that re, that shapes what the wealth distribution looks like, who it goes to and how much there is to pass on. Uh, I think the fundamental the, the one assumption I would draw is that rich Americans are going to pass on more wealth to their richer kids uh, just by virtue of how the system works. And, you know, everyone that I spoke with point to wealth inequality as a, as a fundamental factor to a lot of this. Uh, but we see even now that younger Americans are not as wealthy as their parents were at the same age. And so we see the way in which wealth is accrued at the top, the, the, the upper generational levels of, uh, of American society. But we don't know what it looks like when that starts coming back down. So I talked a lot about the economic side of it and, and touched upon some of the other patterns, but what other patterns can we reasonably expect to emerge as boomers continue to, to age? Well, I think that one of the fascinating things and one of the things that I, I spent a lot of time looking at in the book is this consideration of race in America, right? And this isn't necessarily just about boomers as they age, but it's about the period during which boomers are going to age, right? The baby boomers are going to be around for decades to come. You know, again, the youngest boomers were born in 1964. So we're talking about, you know, less, less than 60 years old at this point in time. Uh, so there are going to be boomers around for a while. And over the course of this period, then, America's can continue to transition to this younger group of people, a more heavily non-white group of people. Uh, and that has inspired some of the backlash that we've seen over the course of the past several years, you know, decade or so in American politics. But one of the fascinating aspects, and I'm just sort of jumping ahead here a little bit, but one of the fascinating aspects is that those assumptions about the demography of the United States are rooted in an assumption that people who identify as a particular race or ethnic group now will continue to do so in the future, that people who are now say, hey, I'm Hispanic. Their kids will be Hispanic and their kids will be Hispanic. And so the density of Hispanics in American culture will get uh, much heavier. And as a result, that the you know, whites will become a minority. And that's inspiring a lot of people to be really freaked out about how America is changing. But that assumption is not necessarily accurate. And that, that people in the future, you know, the, the children of Hispanics may not identify as Hispanics, particularly as we get to this, this much more heavily multiracial society in which the Census Bureau says, you know, if you have a, a, a Hispanic mother and a white father, that your kids are going to be Hispanic. Well, I'm white and my wife is half Hispanic and Native American. And, you know, our, I don't know how our kids are going to identify themselves. Right. Um, and so there are these assumptions that are made about demography, which have very real effects in the moment. It's likely that white Americans, non-Hispanic whites, will be a minority in America over the course of the next decade or two. Uh, but it's not a certainty, and it depends on how people self-identify, and depends on how the Census Bureau measures that. But there's a lot of reaction. You see a lot of actual 
hard reaction, particularly among older generation Americans, to the idea that whites are going to become a minority in the same way that we see reactions to the, the fact that the, the, the density of Christians is, is declining in the United States. We see these reactions that are based in this case on something that isn't necessarily uh, going to be accurate or manifest in the, at the speed that, that the Census Bureau said. Uh, and that could have very real implications for how we prepare for what America looks like and the decisions we're making now and the backlash, the political backlash we've already seen over the course of the past decade. Yeah. And you deal with a lot of that in the book. I, I love some of the really on-point questions that that you ask. Uh, are there enough young people to support older people? Yeah, right. Another key question. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I have a few more questions. I, I want to, one, I want to go back to kind of the beginning. So you started out as a designer at Adobe and you end yeah. up as this really prolific writer, author, uh, you know, multiple columns on a daily basis for the watch. Washington Post. How did you get from Adobe designer to prolific writer for the Washington Post? Okay, so the through line, and you know, I've done enough self reflection. I think I can summarize this. The through line is sort of data and systems analysis, and I, that may not sound very logical, but so I began in about two thousand one. I started a little. It started in college. I was in college at Ohio State. I worked at a computer lab. The computer lab used to be a thing, which I realized when I was at Ohio State a couple of years ago, like they don't have that anymore because everyone has their own yeah. computers. But, you know, when we, when you probably and when I was in college, there was a lab. You go to a big room and if you didn't have a computer, you sat down and use a computer in that room. And I worked at a lab from midnight to 8 a.m. And this was right when uh, the web was emerging. And so I taught myself how to do basic HTML pages and, and you know, learn how to do that. Uh, and that eventually, because I taught myself how to do that and how to do basic coding, that ended up getting me the job at Adobe. And at Adobe, as I said, you know, my job was to teach people how to use the products. And so there was a lot of breaking things down, understanding them, and then presenting that back to people. And so I kept on the side, I had my own personal blog, and I was sort of assessing the news and doing charts for the news, uh, you know, that. Uh, I worked at Adobe, eventually I ended up working in the labor movement and working in California for an extended period of time. Uh, I worked on political campaigns and got to, you know, the same thing. Political campaigns are about putting together the proper number of numbers you need in order to win an election, right? Um, and so you, it is data analysis is figuring out what you need and then putting it together and 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 getting the numbers. And so then I ended up doing consulting for a brief period of time, but I realized that what I really wanted to do was I wanted to do this sort of analysis. Um, and so I started uh, writing for the web, but that was the continuing theme. It was a thing happened. What are the numbers that undergird that? What's the information that undergirds that? How, you know, if it's complex, how do we pick apart that complexity and present it to people in a way they can understand? And it just happens to be something that I'm good at. And so that's yeah. that's that's where it landed. So my other question, uh, uh, kind of on the personal side, is, I mean, just clearly by the number of references you have in the book, it's clear that you're a great researcher, but are you a voracious, as voracious of a reader as it seems? And And if so, who are you reading? What are you reading right now? You know, it's funny because I'm I'm not, right? And I, I, I'm sort of embarrassed to say that, but I spend so much time dealing in the day-to-day -day news, mm. like for my job. Like, yeah. you know, I you know, I spend a lot of time on social media, understand I read a lot of news articles, uh, but I don't actually have a lot of time to actually sit and read. Uh, that's not true. Everyone has a lot of time to sit and read if they choose to do so. Yeah. I end up, you know, I also have a kid who's six and a kid who's three. Uh, which so you're reading Good Night life. Moon. That's your recommendation. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I can tell you all about Elephant and Piggy in the, in the whole gang. Um, so I, I don't, and I'm a little embarrassed to say that. Yeah, I have the most recent book I've read is The Aftermath by Philip Bump. Uh, I also haven't written it. Uh, but, you know, I, I, you know, I tend to, in my downtime, I tend to watch movies and things like that. So oh, I, 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 I am embarrassed to, to admit that. Well, there's some great content on uh, on TV. You can access streaming, good streaming See? shows, great movies. So trying to educate my kids on uh, some great cinema, you know, got to go sure, watch yeah. Godfather one, Godfather two, Raging. Yeah, Bowl. my kids are a little young, a little young for the Godfather. A little young gonna, for Raging Bull. Yeah, I a would little think bit, so. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, do you have any questions for me? Yeah, I mean, tell me what 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 do you find to be the most useful way of cutting through? I mean, my job on a day to day basis is understanding, you know, the way in which different political groups represent themselves and the tensions between them. What do you find is actually the best way to cut through that? And this is, this is your, your podcast is predicated on this idea. Like, well, how, how do you find what's successful? What, what works? So it's a great question. And I'm learning 
part of the project is I need to learn myself. I'm not really mm. good at it and I'm, I'm trying to get better at it. Um, I've come across some really great uh, people, some great organizations. Um, and, and just here recently in the last season, um, I've become really good friends with the folks at the Village Square. Um, mm. You know, it started in Tallahassee. Now it's a national uh, nonprofit organization. And through the Village Square, just recently I met um, a incredible journalist, uh, Monica Guzman, um, and she's affiliated now with an organization called Braver Angels. Her recent book, uh, I, I think, really distills and resonated with what a lot of what I've been learning over the last two years. And, you know, not to oversimplify it, but um, her book is about, hmm, that's interesting. I never thought of it that way. And I, in fact, if off the top of my head, I think that's the name of her book. I never thought of it that way. Hmm. Um, so, you know, being um, radically curious, uh, you know, our tendency, including mine, and I catch myself literally on a daily basis doing this, having the comeback for something like when uh, my my uh, nice acquaintance, a uh, business acquaintance told me, but well, 81 million, obviously 81 yeah. million didn't buy. And I had all these comebacks for her and it, that just wasn't uh, my, uh, I think a more effective way is to, oh, that's, that's interesting. Why do you feel that way? You know, and and because what it does is, uh, and I've I've been modestly successful here and there with that approach. What it does is, it is um, one step or one rung up a ladder, if you will, to a relationship. Mm-hmm. And if I nurture a relationship, it gives me a little bit more fertile ground to have some persuasion. You know, if if I do push back at a certain point, it's not just on petty, you know, trivial things. Um, then it, it has more weight if I do push back or if I offer a different perspective, I've earned that right by uh, being more of a listener and and a curious, um, friendly dialogue partner. So, you know, th- there's lots of other things, but I, you know, that, that book, um, again, really resonated with some of the things that I, I was learning along the way. And um, <laughs> the other thing too is, if we're looking to change someone's perspective 180 degrees in one conversation, we're going to be sure, endlessly sure. frustrated. Yeah. Um, but if we're looking to maybe have one degree of influence, one degree of persuasion, um, that you know, from one conversation, I, I think there's a lot more opportunity for that, especially if we enter into it with the possibility that we might be persuaded about something as well, or at least better understand their point of view. You know, so those are some of the things that uh, that I've been learning along the way. But again, I'm the worst student in the class. So uh, <laughs> trying to get my F up to a D plus. <laughs> uh, I, I, have a, I have a great anecdote for you that is real, along the lines of, of what you just said. So in 2009, I was living in New York City and I got called for jury duty um, and I was just doing contract work at the time and I had a contract to end. And so they were like, well, we're looking for people who can sit on a jury that might last a month or two. And I was like, you know what? I have never been on jury duty. I'm intrigued. I'll do it. So the case ended up being, so I don't know how familiar you are with New York, but I've heard Very, more. Yeah, I kind of grew okay. up there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great. Okay. So yeah. uh, Brooke Astor, a denizen of the, you know, the New York social scene for decades, uh, inherited the Astor family fortune from, you know, the Waldorf story and Astor Square and you know, yeah. so forth. Her son uh, was accused of having taken advantage of her dementia and stolen money from her. And so I ended up serving as a juror on this case that lasted six months uh, over the course of 2009. And, you know, just this wide galaxy of New York social, you know, giants who came and served as witnesses. Uh, Henry Kissinger sat in a witness box, Barbara Walter sat in a witness box, Annette Laurenta. Uh, and uh, eventually, after seeing six months of, of testimony and evidence, the jury was tasked with going back and issuing a verdict. And so we all went back into the jury room. And I, being me, and being this this person who always feels confident that he's got things figured out, and, <laughs> you know, often does not, um, went into the jury room. I was like, okay, we all saw that, you know, we weren't allowed to talk about the evidence prior to that point, because that's how it works in the jury. And so I walk in the jury room, and I'm feeling, okay, like, obviously, everyone saw the same thing I did. We're all going to reach the same conclusion. And it's very critically disabused of that. And we disagreed on a wide range of things. But one of the things that emerged over the course of that time in the jury room was that we had one juror in particular who was simply not moved by logical argument, right? Mm. That, that was not what motivated her. And, I, you know, I, I realized in the moment that 
for people who are motivated by passion, you can't logic them to your your same conclusion, right? And so we ended up having to, because all the 11 rest of us were in agreement on these, these key charges. She was not. We sort of had to figure out how do we get her to that place? And we had to, you know, we had to have a different sort of relationship with her. And we couldn't just simply say, well, don't you remember when they had the evidence on this day? We couldn't do that. We had to be like, you know, what do you think? And how's it going? And it really was very, very uh, informative to me to understand in this really high stakes, a very important yeah. issue, right? This yeah. is not, you know, and it really was like there's this microcosm. You don't usually get placed into a situation where you and a small group of people have to come up with a very important decision on something. Uh, but it really forced us to do that and to understand her and where she was coming from. And eventually we, we reached a unanimous verdict. And it was just, it was just, I remember that moment and just being sort of flabbergasted, like, oh my God, everyone saw this totally differently than I did. And we're not going to be able to, you know, this is not, I assume we'd be done. 10 minutes and that was yeah. how it shaped <laughs> Yeah, the lens through which we see can be very, very different. So before mm-hmm. we go, how can we find you more information about the new book, The Aftermath, and all the great work that you're doing? Sure. Easiest way is pbump.com, P-B-U-M-P.com. That's, you know, got all the stuff about the book. Uh, that's also my Twitter handle. If you're interested or go to the Washington Post, just do a search for Philip Bump. There aren't too many of those in the world and that'll come right up. Philip Bump, Philip with one L, mind you. That's it. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I'll be tagging, uh, Philip Bump and, uh, the book and, uh, all that throughout the, the coming week. And, uh, yeah, I appreciate you coming in. There's a great conversation. Yes. It's so cool. I, you know, I, I found so much of the book and your work for, you know, for years now to be really, really fascinating. That's so good. it's a real treat for me to get to talk to you directly. Of course. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts, and tell a friend about talking politics and religion not killing each other. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's politicsandreligion.us. It's www.politicsandreligion.us. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect, and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Bye.